0: Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50, we're in verses 15 through 21, one last time before we end our Genesis series. Let's pray before we begin. God, I I pray that we would know you, that we would see you, that your people would be encouraged, that our relationship with you would grow through this time in your word. Let your word be utilized by your Holy Spirit in your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes a story uh, very aptly captures something from real life, so much so that it, you know you kind of call it that from, from then on. Uh, I'm thinking of the the book, The Strange Case of, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. He wrote it quite a while ago now. But the the story of it is there's this guy, Dr. Jekyll. He is well-respected, he's educated, he's cultured, he's kind, he's a philanthropist and all that. And he's somehow oddly involved with this very scurrilous, low-life, shady character named Mr. Hyde, who who's like this little stooped guy who who just raises hell all over London, you know, debauching himself and, and running over women and not apologizing and beating a man to death. And of course the whole punchline of the story is that they're the same guy that, that Dr. Jekyll has made up a potion that when he drinks it, he becomes Mr. Hyde and he lives out this completely contrary character as this other person. So when, We say someone is Jekyll and Hyde. They have a Jekyll and Hyde character. It means really they have two contradictory characters. It's one person with two contradictory characters. And many of us who follow God, the God revealed to us in the pages of the Bible, we kind of have that understanding of God. Even if you're not a follower of God and you're just kind of curious, it may seem to you that there's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde to God. That that sometimes he he shows up like Dr. Jekyll. He's you know this merciful, kind God. He's this creating God. He's he's uh, he, you know he's forming with his his bare hands. He's forming man out of the dirt and and his his songs are written by his people in the Psalms of of these tender verses that are new every morning or or he speaks comfort to his people through his prophets or it's Jesus right I mean being a prime example the one who dies for us who told who tells us turn the other cheek who 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 would rather go to a cross than lead an army then there seems to be this Mr. Hyde part that, that that we don't get, that we play down perhaps, and and this is the side of God that's this is the the contradictory side. There, there seems to be no mercy, no tenderness. It's it's like this harsh, angry, judgmental God who you know you read these passages and and your hair stands on it like wow that's harsh and some people try the very unhelpful uh, move of saying well that was the Old Testament God you know you have the Old Testament and the New Testament the Old Testament he was different he was very angry always pouring out wrath (laughs) and then the New Testament he's he's always nice you know Jesus comes in there it's like well I mean there's a lot of places in the Old Testament where God is awfully forgiving and merciful and some places in the New Testament where there seems to be judgment ask Ananias and Sapphira so which is it because if we have sort of a dr. Jekyll mr. Hyde God how could you know that God how could you love that God if there are two characters that are contradictory how could you know and love God then we've been in the book of Genesis, Old Testament, first book of the Old Testament, in fact. And if you want to understand the message of the Bible, there's three questions you need to ask. Three, because we're at the end of Genesis and we're asking, what's it about? What's the point? What's the big picture point? Not just the point of this text, but now that we've reached the end, as we look back, what's the the big picture point of Genesis? So there's three questions you have to ask. And those of you who who wanna study your Bibles better, these are three questions that you should like etch down somewhere and ask them of every text. Before you can answer what the message is of a text, you have to ask three things. First, who wrote it? Second, who did they write it to? And third, why? Who, to who, why? In this case, Genesis is written by Moses, to the Exodus generation. This is the generation of Israelites that were in slavery or, or just after. They are currently in the wilderness or just about to enter the land of Canaan. And these folks spent 430 years in Egypt, much of it in slavery. And you have to remember, there was no such thing as a Bible back then. There were no scriptures. There was no priesthood. And even though they had seen God deliver them, they had seen the manna, they had seen the the cloud by day and the fire by night, they probably knew a lot more about the Egyptian gods that they were raised on than they did about the one true God. And so the, the why of this text, of the book of Genesis, of which this text is the capstone, the why is to introduce God's people to their God so that they could know him. What does this passage show us? Because this isn't a passage that tells, it's a passage that shows and hopes that we're paying attention to what it's showing us. Look with me at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now, For those of you who who weren't here for the series or don't know this story, Joseph's brothers had thrown him in a ditch and left him to die. They carried out a murder. But then when, when a caravan of Ishmaelites came along, they sold him into slavery instead. For the ancient audience, murder was considered bad. But fratricide? You couldn't get much lower than that. If you're an ancient hearer, you might even be hoping that the brothers finally get their comeuppance at the end. And the brothers acknowledge this. They say, maybe he's going to pay us back for all the evil. It's not maybe Joseph's going to get us. They're saying, maybe he's going to pay us back. Give us what we deserve. The brothers deserve death. And Joseph has the power of life and death they send this message to him. Look, look at how this looks. It says, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So they come in. It, 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 even in verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. They're acknowledging not only do they deserve it, they're acknowledging that Joseph has the power of life and death. If you think about it, Joseph might be the most single powerful Hebrew ever. Yeah, David and Solomon were kings, but they were kings of a third rate power. That's about as good as Israel got. But Joseph is the number two guy in a first-rate power, Egypt, and he has the power of life and death over these guys. So they deserve death. He has the power of life and death, and also, Joseph is righteous. There's nothing in this text that tells us, but the story up to this point, Joseph is presented to us as, as someone who really doesn't mess up. First of all, he gets the largest section of Genesis where he's the protagonist. That's the longest. He gets the most airtime. And really when you look at his story and and compare it with the other main characters of Genesis, there's no smut on Joseph's rep, you know, like Adam and Eve do big time. Noah had that whole drunk naked thing. Um, Abraham had the whole I'll give my wife to another guy to be married to save my life. That didn't look too good. Isaac becomes a glutton. Jacob, for goodness sake, right? Like his whole his whole vibe is scurrilous. And Judah uh, also has has really really shady things going on. And Joseph really doesn't have anything. He is he is presented as righteous. He's the guy who gets it the most too, right? This this speech at the end that that we've been a couple of weeks in. So the brothers deserve death. Joseph has the power of life and death, and Joseph is, is righteous. But look at how Joseph responds when he has the power and the right to carry out punishment. Joseph said to them, not take out revenge on them. He doesn't carry out like a judgment, which they would deserve. He reconciles with them and he commits to caring for them. He doesn't even just say, get out of my sight. <laughs> right? He, he goes all the way to, I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to take care of your children. He displays something that the Bible calls chesed. The word isn't there, but the concept sure is. Has said is committed steadfast love. We're going to talk a lot about it. But, but Joseph does, is, a, is a wonderful picture of it right here. Now, you notice he says this, this funny thing. Am I in the place of God? Of course, the answer is no, but there sure are some parallels. Can we think of anywhere else in Genesis where God has had the power of life and death? Is righteous and has been sinned against the garden the the very beginning of the tension of the plot of the Bible what did God do how did he respond did he respond by just saying yep Adam Eve you're done that would be righteous it's not what God did he instead forgives he instead launches this this massive campaign of redemption that we're still in What Joseph does in micro, God does in macro. We see that in the book of Genesis and we see that throughout the Bible. Now, what is this trying to tell God's people about their God? What kind of God is he? What's the big picture arc of Genesis? It is not one of judgment or anger or revenge. It is one of as the Bible calls it, chesed. It's saying that chesed is core to God's character. And it lets us know God rightly. Now this word chesed, it's a key term in the Bible, and it's tough to translate. It's tough to capture everything that it's about. The ESV and NRSV, they translate it, steadfast love. So. If you're reading your ESV or NRSV and you find steadfast love, that's the Hebrew word there. The NIV and King James Version, it's pretty weak. They say kindness, doesn't really get it. The NET does a good job, faithfulness. The New Living Translation, I think, is, is one of the best. They call it unfailing love. The Jesus Storybook Bible, <laughs> which is a kid's Bible, that I think they do have the very best definition. They call it God's never stopping, never giving up love. This this has said, this never stopping, never giving up love, this tenacious love, this committed love is core to God's character. That's what we see in the book of Genesis and what's on display here. John, in his book, 1 John, goes so far as to say God is love. So what does it mean? that this chesed is core to God's character? Well, it's it is uh, it means that he is committed, he is long-suffering, and he is merciful. Those are all part of his chesed, committed, long-suffering, and merciful. First of all, God is committed. That's a huge part of what this means. Um, When we look at the big picture of Genesis, and that's what we're doing, we're wrapping up Genesis today, so we're taking a a look from the end, we're looking back to the beginning. We see God's commitment in that he pursues us. Have we seen any human beings in the book of Genesis chasing after God, trying to find him? No. This movement is all one way. It is God pursuing humanity. What was Abraham doing before God called him worshiping other gods? That's what what was Jacob or Isaac or any of these guys doing? They were lost. They were not headed. They were not searching for God It was God who pursued them and also we see God overcoming obstacles. This is part of his commitment There's an obstacle in the way. What does he do? He deals with it. He gets it out of the way. We we see this in, in one little example I mentioned earlier. Abraham, from whom a great nation was supposed to come through Abraham and Sarai, he gave Sarai his wife to a king to spare his own life. It's going to be tough for Abraham to be a great nation if his wife is living with someone else in a palace. Obstacle. God deals with it, though. And again and again, we see as obstacles erect themselves against God's plan of redemption. God overcomes all of them. Why? Chesed. That's why He's committed. It's um, my favorite kids' book. I mentioned one last week, but I'm going to do another one this week. Is Runaway Bunny? If you've never, the plot is simple. (laughs) Once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away. So he said to his mother, "I'm running away." Uh, If you run away, said his mother, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. If you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish. See, the fish. A fish in a trout stream, and I will swim away from you. If you become a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, I will become a fisherman, and I will fish for you. There's his mom. And it goes on, like a a, a billy goat in a mountain, so she becomes a mountaineer, and so on and so forth. She pursues him overcoming any obstacle. Why? Because Mama Bunny has chesed, never stopping, never giving up love. She is committed to her bunny. (laughs) We think of God sometimes, this Mr. Hyde version of God that we have, as if God is like leaning back, aloof, arms crossed, looking at you like an American Idol judge, you know, just just evaluating you are you worthy are you worthy of my love are you worthy of of relationship with me that that's how we think of God that we've got to perform good enough to prove to God like you know we're up there tap dancing we're done with jazz hands that good enough? right that's what we think a lot of the time and, and we we have it completely backwards it is not God who sits back with arms crossed saying, prove it to me. That's us. That's us who says, you know, uh, God, prove to me that you love me. Prove to me that you're there. Provide for me in this situation or, or let me get this job. We're the ones doing that. We're the ones that are running away from God. And God is the one that shows chesed to us. He's committed to us. He pursues. He overcomes obstacles. He's dealing constantly with obstacles with me, with my hard heart, with my cold love, my struggle with belief. He has to overcome so many obstacles to accomplish my redemption and yours, but he's committed. Let's put away this idea that that there's two characters of God. There's one, and that character is chesed. But there, there's another part of it, because with commitment comes a price to be paid. And another aspect of chesed, I hope you don't get sick of me saying the word, you'll at least remember it, is that God is long-suffering. Long-suffering. There's two parts to long-suffering, long and suffering. It's like, um, it's like you know, in, in 2017, I believe it was, when the Cleveland Browns football team went 0 and 16. 0 and 16. But you know, if you were to go back and look at the like the game tape when they were 0 and 15 playing that final game or second to last, you know, the the 0 and 14 game when they got their 15th loss, like there was a terrible team. But you know who was there? In December Cleveland Brown fans, that's who. Have you ever been in Cleveland in winter? Shout out Maureen Smith, by the way. You ever been in Clevel- Cleveland in winter? It, it is brutal. And these fans are in the stands for their 0-14 football team, cheering their little hearts out in the most unfortunate color combination of brown and orange in all of professional sports. <laughs> right? That is chesed long-suffering. They've been suffering a long time, and they're still in it with their team. That is another aspect of what hesed means. This never stopping, never giving up love no matter how much they have to suffer. Now, it might sound wrong to say that God is long suffering because there's kind of an idea that, well, God can't really suffer. He's completely like detached from our sort of experience. I don't know how God experiences reality or even that's the right way to put it um i don't think anybody does but when we think of god's story that he's revealed to us we see long suffering there all over the place how long has it been since the man and woman rebelled against him in the garden i don't know but a long time by anybody's watch and he's been working on that plan of redemption with humanity turning their backs on him that whole time how long did he stick with Israel, you know, idol-worshiping, poor-oppressing Israel, thousands of years. How long has he stuck with us who struggle to be faithful? And, you know, we may say, well, well yeah, but still not comfortable with this idea of God's suffering. It's even in the uh, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a, a document that I have actually pledged to uphold. It says that you know, God doesn't suffer in the same way that we do. But in the same chapter, it does say God is long-suffering. And also, like we just think of the scriptures. In Genesis 6, God looks at his creation full of corruption. It says he's grieved. Right? So maybe we don't call that suffering, but that's but grieving. Exodus chapter 3 says, I know the suffering of my people. That isn't I'm aware of. It's I'm with them. feels it Jesus in the garden before the cross sweats blood right so so that whatever you want to call it suffering and God part of his great love his never stopping never giving up love is that he's willing to he is long suffering your image of the mr. Hyde God is that he's going to get fed up with you sometime real soon. That you basically have six months to get over whatever problems you have and be a fully formed disciple without sin. (laughs) Except on a few occasions. But if we were to know God rightly, we would know that core to his character is chesed, is this long-suffering. That he is not impatient with us. He's not going anywhere. He is not giving up on his commitment to you and me because we struggle with sin. He's not over you. This, these two aspects of God's chesed, the, 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 this commitment and then this long suffering, they also lead to the fact that God is merciful and his mercy is a huge part of this. We see that God forgives those who wrong him, as Joseph is depicting in micro in this passage. God does in macro with our first parents and with humanity, of course, culminating in his own death on the cross to forgive us. He forgives those who wrong him. And not only that, we also see his mercy in Genesis and throughout the Bible in that he uses sinners to redeem Look at how he used Abraham. Look at how he used Noah. Look at how he used Jacob. I mean, that's one of my favorite stories. I mean, Jacob is so shady, yet Israel bears his name. Remember, his his name got changed to Israel. And God works in his life and uses him in his plan of redemption. David, same thing. Some serious shortcomings and sin. Paul, I mean, again and again and again, God's mercy is that he forgives those who wrong him and he also uses the same people who wrong him as part of redemption. But when we bring up mercy, we also bring up this important issue of, well, okay, this all sounds good, but it sounds maybe like like you haven't taken into account the Hyde part, the Mr. Hyde part. This loving God, sure, but is he like, split personality, Jekyll and Hyde, because we also see these places where he's angry and he's pouring out wrath. How could we say, yeah, chesed is core to his character, love is core to his character when he's also angry and wrathful? Well, I would actually challenge the idea that love is totally counter to anger and wrath. Let me tell you what I mean. One of my best friends in the world. His name's Ethan. He played guitar in my band. We lived together. We've known each other since we were teenagers. Um, he's a great guy. Very loving guy. He's I call him Shrek because he's built like an ogre. Just one of these naturally large, strong guys. You know, wrists as big as my legs. Kind of six four and and um, but but very very kind. Like he he's he. I, I've never really seen him get upset except on a handful of occasions. Um, he's very forgiving, very gentle person, you know, great with kids, that sort of thing. And one time, Ethan and I were were in my backyard back in Nashville and we were like barbecuing or something like that. And and um, he was kind of like over by my fence and then all of a sudden I see him kind of freeze and he looks kind of through the slats in my fence and he's he all of a sudden stands up and his whole persona and body posture changes from this affable, fun, easygoing guy to like a, an enraged monster. Right? And he jumps on my fence, you know, pulls himself up so that he's half sticking, a, a, like he's like 10 feet in the air at the top of his head. And he looks down at something going on on the other side of my, my fence. And, and he points, this, you know, his, his banana bunch size hands. And he says, you get your hands off of her right now. And I hear a woman cry out in the alley. And what, what had happened is, is he had heard a scuffle and and he looked and he saw a man putting his hands on a woman. Now, kind, kind and gentle Ethan, if there's one thing he's not going to abide, it's a bully, especially if it's a, if it's a man getting violent with a woman, he's just not standing for it. And this guy, you know, who's in the alley, hurting this woman, all of a sudden the fence next to him sprouted like a 10 foot tall, enraged, heavily tattooed giant. He runs for his life. Like he's just out of there. Let me ask you, was the fact that Ethan got angry and ready to pour out wrath. I know he was, if the guy had challenged him, there would have been some wrath pouring out. Is that contradictory to his loving character? Was that an exception? Or in that situation, was that part of his loving character that his anger would respond because he's a loving person? And so the right response there was to be ready to pour out wrath in that situation. Pouring out of wrath and anger is not contradictory to love in every case. Now, in the Bible, most pouring out of wrath is nothing more than a warning. Okay, like like that's about 90% of it is God saying, you're oppressing the poor, stop or else. You're oppressing my people, stop or it won't go well for you. And most of the time, the warning is enough and the people repent or back off, and it never actually gets carried out. Uh, not only that, like uh, when you have one instance where God actually carries out judgment, there's a long leash before that. There's a long fuse, rather, right? There's there's decades, hundreds of years sometimes of of warnings before the consequence comes. And so it looks like well, He's just judging all the time. You know, look how many pages are devoted to judgment. But really, it is God saying hands off my people now right and it's trying to dissuade who's ever doing that to to, to repent to stop this self-destructive and other destructive path now some some things that seem like judgment to us are actually just god pronouncing consequences because you did this now this is going to happen right like uh, famously in the the curse uh, pronounced to the man in the garden, he, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. He's not saying I'm cursing the ground. It's saying the ground is cursed now because of you. It's saying there's a consequence of your action. And, and there are a few instances where his wrath is indeed poured out to Egypt, um, Edom, Assyria, um, the exile on his own people. The reason for this is mainly for the deliverance of his people. Like in the story of Exodus, his people are being oppressed or enslaved or threatened or harmed. And God comes in and says, this has to end or the rich and powerful oppressing the poor. That's was, that was the case in, uh, in Israel and Judah. And judgment is carried out in consequence of that. It is for the deliverance of his people. And on very few occasions, only three that I can think of—the flood, the exile, and Sodom and Gomorrah—it's it, it's sort of this judgment that's like chemotherapy, like things have become so corrupt and so morally diseased that God has to like God has to salvage what He can through an extreme means, but. That is not to say that God's judgment is somehow contradictory to his character of love. Even God's judgment, and mainly his warnings of judgment, remember that's most of what judgment is in the Bible, is not from a place of schizophrenic character, but of his consistent character of love. God's core character is not contradictory. It is, it is characterized by chesed, this never stopping, never giving up love, that expresses itself in his commitment, his long-suffering, and his mercy. God is not a Jekyll and Hyde God. His character is consistent right through the book of Genesis, right through the Bible, right through the end of history. If God has shown us his character through his word. What what is it for us to do? Like what was the what was the message to his people back then of the book of Genesis which we're wrapping up here? If this is God's core character, it's to know your God. To know that he isn't capricious one way one day and another the next. That he's not inconsistent. That he's always operating out of his hesed. It's kind of like, um, I heard the story of uh, Joel Siegel, who was a a famous film critic and like talk show host or whatever. And he, um, when he was 52 years old, found out the same day that he was going to have his first child, it would be his son Dylan, and that he had very serious colon cancer. And so he started that day on, on a book. He put himself in the pages of this book. It's called Lessons, Lessons for Dylan. And, um, and he tells his story to his son in this book about how he met Dr. King two times. He met the Beatles once. He used to be a, a speechwriter for, for Bobby Kennedy about growing up, uh, you know, where he grew up and, and, and his Jewish heritage and all these other, you know, parts of his life. He wanted his son to know his life, but that's not all. He puts his personality in the book. You know, he's this very funny, jokey guy. And uh, so there's a lot of funny things in the book, right? Even though it's a sad circumstance. It's like, there's one chapter called, Where Do Babies Come From? And uh, it's, it's a single sentence. It says, go ask your mother. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, you know, even his wishes for him. Uh, of how he would want to direct them. He has a a, a chapter heading that says, uh, be anything you want, but please, God, don't want to be an actor. (laughs) Right? And and, like when you read this, his love for his son comes across every page. Why did he write that? So that when he was gone and he didn't live long into his son's life, his son, even, even to his old age, could pick that book up. And by reading it would know his father, know his story, his character, know his love for him. The Bible is the same way. The Bible isn't mainly a book of of doctrine or of rules. There's doctrines and rules in it, yeah. It's a book in which God reveals himself to us. It's a book through which, when we understand it rightly, and, and receive it in faith. We get to know God. Core to God's character in his word is his, his, his love, his never stopping, never giving up love. And that is consistent to who he is. And we need to know God rightly. Why do we stress the Bible so much at Grace and Peace? Why do we wanna help people learn to read it better and love it and hear it and respond? It's because God wants us to know Him. He wants us to know His character. And the more we know Him, the more we're going to respond in love. Please pray with me. God, praise you for your never stopping, never giving up love, for the difference that you have made in our lives, for how you are working to restore the world You could have poured out right judgment on humanity, but you have something so much better because of your commitment, your long-suffering, and your mercy. Bless us that we don't deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.